The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Welcome to Just Say No to the Olympics in Chicago. We have a panel um, this morning. I guess it's still the morning. My name is Becca. I'm in the ISO in um, Boston. And our panelists tonight, or today, are Dave, <laughs> Dave, Bob, and Chris. Um, I'm going to introduce them each. <laughs> um, so Dave Zirin is a uh, columnist for the Nation, Slam, and Socialist Worker. He's a sports writer, has written extensively um, about sports, and he's the author of a variety of books, which I will um, announce at the end. And he's also, um, you can check out his stuff on edgeofsports.com. Um, and he's going to speak, each of these panelists are going to speak for about 15 minutes about um, the, the Olympics uh, that are coming here in Chicago and, and also the struggle against um, the Olympics coming to uh, Vancouver as well. And I'll introduce um, each of the speakers right now. So after Dave, there will be um, Bob Koalas, who's in the ISO in Chicago. Um, and he's also part of No Game Chicago, um, an activist um, fighting back the Olympic bid here, here in Chicago. And after that will be Chris Shaw from um, Vancouver, who's written a lot and an activist against um, the Olympics and against the gentrification um, that's been coming into um, Vancouver around the Olympics, and also the author thank you, of Five Ring Circus, which everyone um, should check out. So without further ado, I'm just going to pass it over to the three speakers. Um, and after the speakers uh, present, there'll be plenty of time for discussion, and I'll talk a little bit more of that um, in a moment. So without further ado, Dave. Thank you so much. It is such a thrill to get 15 minutes to just trash the Olympic Games. <laughs> it makes me so happy. It fills me with great pleasure, and it's both personal and political for me. First, let me explain why it's personal. Picture it. It's Thursday. I'm getting off the plane with my wife, Michelle, with our two kids. My one-and-a-half-year-old has a diaper that weighs about 25 pounds. <laughs> I am covered in pee. It's not mine, it's my kids. It's not cute. And I'm walking off the airplane. It had been a 90 minute wait in DC. And I'm feeling like just dazed, like I just did 15 rounds with Jack Johnson. Not the folk singer either. I'm just like dazed. And I get off the plane and I'm hit with this insanely cheery voice piped through O'Hare Airport that says, let friendship shine, Chicago 2016. I have never felt so violent after hearing the word friendship in my entire life. I was so angry. And now that is why I am so glad to trash the Olympics. Now, I can understand people saying, why trash the Olympics? I mean, isn't it just sports? 
Isn't it just a festival of nations? And after all, who doesn't love a good luge? And I understand that. <laughs> but let me tell you another story that's more political that may explain the problem with the Olympics. And I will preface this by saying this is a story that has never been told before and was told to me by somebody in the know. And it may or may not be true. And I may or may not be sued for telling it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good buildup, right? Um, it's 2004. It's New York City. And they are making an aggressive bid to land the 2012 Games. And one of the big points of contention and protest from New Yorkers is this idea that a million people coming out of town for the Olympics would just wreak havoc on the traffic situation in New York City. I mean, I'm from New York, and it's bad on a good, lazy Sunday. And so the idea of the Olympics coming in, just people were freaking out about it. And the billionaire mayor for life of New York, a gentleman by the name of Michael Bloomberg, you're supposed to hiss when I say that, let's try again, a gentleman named Michael Bloomberg, he was asked about the traffic problems, and his response, according to a buddy of mine, was, well, that's why God invented helicopters. Now, leaving aside the theological implications of God inventing the helicopter, I think it makes a good point because what somebody thinks about the Olympics and whether it's good for your city economically, I think very much depends on whether you're on the street or in a helicopter because the view is very, very different. Because there is a common thread that runs through every Olympics over the last 70 years, whether you're talking about Berlin in 1936 or Atlanta in 1996. And I think it was said very well by Michael Fish of Sports Illustrated. This is what he said. And keep in mind, this is an Olympic writer who celebrates the Olympics. This is what he said. Only those who want to see their hometowns bankrupted, militarized, and flattened should pine for the Olympic Games. Now, for an example of this, I'd like to go way back in history, and I hope you guys can work with me on this because we're going back a long ways. I'd like to go all the way back to 2008 in Beijing. And, I mean, I know that was a long time ago. That was back when we only had white presidents. And, um, <laughs> and in Beijing, the government spent $20 billion and displaced 2 million people. But while people were hurting on the ground, it definitely looked great from the helicopters because those games were what the West wanted. It was an absolute feeding frenzy of commercialism in China. Over $6 billion was spent by 63 Western corporations, all with the goal of tapping those great untapped markets in China. My favorite was Pepsi, which went from a blue can to a red can for the Olympics, sold only in China with the slogan, Go Red, Go Pepsi. <laughs> Which is in conjunction with the Chinese Communist Party. Pepsi, the drink of Chinese communism. Um, or we could go back to some other recent Olympic economic news, and we're going to go back to 2006 right now. And the news of, on the economic front in 2006 was that Montreal had finally finished paying off the deficit for its games. The Montreal games were in 1976. It took 30 years to pay off the deficit for the building that went into those games. And I think we, are, we should definitely remember the arrogance of a Canadian Olympic official in 1976. Who, and I guess imagine a guy like with plaid pants and sideburns, like very arrogantly going up to a microphone and he said, Olympics cause deficits as often as men have babies. Wow. Of course, this past year a man did have a baby. People may have seen that on various <laughs> websites. So... There you go. Or 2004, Athens, Greece, 
They said that the Olympics would cost $1.5 billion. It actually cost $14.2 billion, pushing the country's budget deficit to record levels. Greek officials who are pro-Olympics say that that deficit, unlike Montreal, which took 30 years, may never be paid off. So if you care about the economy of Chicago and you live in this town, you say no to the Olympics. Also, say no to the Olympics if you want to save this city from the kind of police violence and state repression which I think can only be rivaled in the theater of war. I mean, the, the slogan of the Olympics, people may know, is stronger, faster, higher, which sounds like a discarded Viagra slogan, quite frankly. <laughs> but, but I think the slogan should actually be something wicked this way comes. Because there is such a yawning gap between what the Olympics say they stand for and what actually happens on the ground. I want to read something from the Olympic Charter, which was put out by the founders of the Olympic Games, all noblemen with high aspirations. If there were helicopters back then, they would have been flying above the masses. They were the Michael Bloombergs of their day. And this is what they said the goal of Olympism was. They said, the goal of Olympism is to place sport at the service of the harmonious development of man with a view to promoting a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. Now, think about that last part, a peaceful society with the preservation of human dignity, because the negation of that happens when the Olympics come to your town. The politicians, they always start saying the same thing, that a city must be made presentable for an international audience, and that's when the blood really starts flowing. Once again, let's start in China. They threw people in prison by the thousands for protesting the destruction of their own homes. They cracked down on Tibet, and in their own words of their own party newspaper, they said that they were on war footing to put down any dissent in the wake of the Olympic Games. But this isn't a China issue. It's an Olympic issue. And this repression is as much of a, tradi a tradition of the Olympic Games as the whole running and the lighting of the torch. And I mean that literally, because the first running and lighting of the torch, people may be familiar with the ceremony that was protested around the world in the wake of the Chinese games, was actually an invention of Hitler's Nazi propaganda machine. It came straight from the office of Joseph Goebbels. The goal was to cross Europe before the 1936 games in Berlin and hype people up and be a running sort of propaganda train for the Aryans. And they liked the idea of lighting the torch because the Nazis were totally into this idea of sort of Greek mythology and Greek classicalism. They had a fetishized view of it, that it was the, there was a direct line between the Aryan race and the classical Greeks. And so they saw the lighting of the torch as being intrinsically tied to that. But they also were merciless, not surprising. I mean, Hitler had to make Berlin, once again, presentable for an international audience. And with the help of a certain head of the United States Olympic Committee at the time, a man named Avery Brundage, a man who, I mean, this guy, he, he just, he loved Hitler. I mean, just quick, Avery Brundage. I mean, he was a guy who uh, was so pro-Hitler, he was thrown out of the America First Committee in World War II because they said he was too pro-Hitler. So that means you had people like Henry Ford and Joseph Kennedy say, you know, Avery, it's a little embarrassing. <laughs> and that's who was in charge of the Olympics for most of the 20th century. And this tradition laid out by Hitler, the torch, the ceremony, and most crucially, the repression, has all been retained by the Olympics. And I could give any example of this. And it's kind of crazy because you have the Hitler Olympics in 1936. There's no Olympics in 1940 or 44 because of World War II. The Olympics come back in 1948. Hitler and the Nazis are gone, but all the ceremonies that they launched with the Olympics remain forevermore. The lighting 
lighting of the torch, the pomp and circumstance, the nationalism, and uh, just the, the, the god-awful repression. Here's another example, and I'll take it to this country. 1984, Los Angeles Police Chief Darrell Gates. He oversees the jailing of thousands of young African-American men in what were infamously called the Olympic gang sweeps. And Gates, the way he prepared for this was he sent the LA SWAT team for training and how to put down a dissident population, he sent them to Israel. He sent them to Israel for training about how to go to South Central and put people down. They passed laws in LA in the lead up to the Olympics. They, they reignited something called the 1916 Anti-Syndicalism Act, which was put up against the industrial workers of the world, which what it did was it allowed you to actually imprison people for giving each other signs, which they took to mean like high fives, gang signs, anything. And if more than three people were congregating on a corner, you could go to jail. 1996, the Atlanta Games. That was supposed to demonstrate the New South. Remember Bill Clinton, 96, the New South. And God, I'm glad he's gone. And, and people, the New South looked a lot like the Old South. Public housing was destroyed. People were chased off the streets. Atlanta officials actually uh, passed through uh, uh, these things they called the six ordinances, which included being able to arrest people for sitting or lying down on public property. And they also, the, the Olympic Committee actually built a jail for the city of Atlanta. And activists said it was the only structure for the Olympic Games that was built on time and under budget. But the worst example of Olympic repression without question was October 2nd, 1968, Mexico City, the massacre of Tlatelolco Square, where hundreds of Mexican students and workers were slaughtered for protesting 10 days before the Olympic Games. And the aim was, as always, it was a preemptive strike to make sure that the Olympic Games would not be used as a platform for protest. Of course, the great irony of the 1968 Games is that while the officials smashed people outside the Games, it's, it's become the most enduring symbol of dissent, and it happened inside the games when Tommy Smith and John Carlos from the Olympic Project for Human Rights raised their black love fist in an electric symbol of resistance and struggle. And the 1968 games have always been defined as a place for dissent. And I think it's a lesson the 2008 officials remembered well, and it's something we should remember well, because both the Chinese government and the International Olympic Committee in China went after dissent, not just on the outside in places like Hunan and uh, Shanghai, but they also came down on the athletes as well. I mean, when gold, gold medalist uh, speed skater Joey Cheek, he attempted to enter China, he was part of something called Team Darfur, where they were hoping to make statements on behalf of the people of Darfur in China. The Chinese government, the night before his flight, revoked his visa and prevented him from entering the country. And he expected the International Olympic Committee to actually stand up for him and say, wait a minute, this is one of our gold medalists. He actually supported, as all of Team Darfur did, supported the games coming to China as a way to start dialogue with them about Darfur. And he expected Jacques Roger, the head of the International Olympic Committee, to actually say something for him on his behalf. And instead, Roger issued a statement where he said, it's my belief that political factors must be kept separate from the Olympic Games. Now, this is Jacques Roger, by the way, is an Olympian himself. He was a yachtsman in 64 and 68, back when that was an Olympic sport. And he's a knight of the court of Belgium, which he brags about. And if you know anything about the history of Belgium and royalty, King Leopold, that's not something you want to brag about. And, but Jacques Roger does. And he's saying the Olympics have, should have nothing to do with politics, even though the opening ceremonies of the Games had Bush, Kissinger, and Putin in the same box 
watching the opening ceremonies. And this wasn't just Roger, it was a whole host of Olympic leaders saying they would not tolerate dissent on the athletic field. USA basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski, who I'm from Maryland, we also know him as the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> and it, it's an affectionate nickname. And he was getting very agitated because several of actually his athletes, uh, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, they were starting to engage with issues of like Tibet and Darfur and asking about it. And he issued a statement where he said, no athlete has any responsibility, historical or otherwise, to be political, only to represent their country. But the worst was the chief of the Canadian Olympic Committee. It's a gentleman I know Chris Shaw is very familiar with, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dick Pound. And it's a very unfortunate name, Dick Pound. I mean, you, I mean, you got to feel sorry for the guy. I mean, I think his parents should be brought up on charges. But that's his name, Dick Pound. Actually, a true story. I was talking about him on the radio, and uh, someone, the producer, actually came in and said, "You can't say that on the air." And I was like, "It's his name, Dick Pound." I don't understand. No problems. That's his name, Dick Pound. Okay. Well, this is what he said. He said. If it is so tough for you that you cannot bear to not say anything, then just stay at home. Now, silencing dissent is always essential to the Olympic project. And to be clear, once again, this is not a Beijing thing. It's an Olympic thing. So Chicago, please reject these games. Reject them because they will bring police repression and economic ruin to a challenged city. But also reject them because the politics of the Olympics is an absolute carnival of nationalism. I mean, think about the games. It's flag versus flag, medal count versus medal count, country versus country. This isn't about bringing people together. It's about tearing them apart and dividing the earth. And I will say this, though. Just because the Olympics themselves are so noxious, so nauseating on so many levels, it doesn't mean we need to reject the very sports that are part of the Olympics as a part of this. Because honestly, I would argue that the best thing about the Olympics is that it's one of the few times when in our sporting oxygen, we actually get to see women athletes portrayed prominently. It's one of the few times where you actually get to see sports other than the stultifying world of baseball, basketball, football, and on a good day, hockey. But I think we need to celebrate sports in a way that brings us closer together, not in a way that tears us apart. And I really want to end by recalling another Chicago sporting event from 1932, and that was the Chicago Counter Olympics. That was when the Communist Party in this country and allies set up an integrated festival aimed at celebrating sport and struggle in opposition to the 1932 Olympics that were happening at the time in Los Angeles. The Chicago Counter Olympics called for the full equality of Negro athletes in all sports organizations and meets, and workers' sports clubs that were segregated were publicly denied entry. And thousands showed up to participate, even though they were risked with being banned for life by the Amateur Athletic Union if they actually showed up and participated. And one-third of the athletes who competed at the Chicago Counter Olympics, about 100, were African American. By contrast, in Los Angeles, at the real Olympics, there were four African-American athletes who were allowed to participate. And when they ran at the Chicago Counter Olympics, they wore shirts that instead of having what country you were from, had slogans like, free the Scottsboro boys, and down with capitalism. And that's what people, you know, that's how you were able to identify people when they performed athletically. And it was a celebration of sport, not a celebration of what divides us as a people. So I really want to urge the people of Chicago, please, reject the Olympics and embrace a different kind of sporting tradition that could actually empower our community and not the people who look down upon us from the helicopters in the sky. Thank you very much.
I have to follow Dave. Um, it's a rough morning. Um, so I'm really happy to be on a panel with Dave and Chris, who have done so much groundwork and been able to fight the Olympics. I'm a member of No Game Chicago, which is putting forward a fight against the Olympics coming to Chicago here. Um, we've held a protest on town, have a website, nogamechicago.com, and it's got a lot of information up there. Um, and and have, other, have had other actions to, to take out in the Olympics. Um, so, so that's who I am. Uh, I want to welcome, welcome you guys to, to Chicago, a city that Lenny Bruce stated is so corrupt it's thrilling. <laughs> and to, to emphasize Bruce's point, I want to remind you where the city that brought you Rod Blagojevich and his hairpiece, or whatever that is on top of his head, right? The man that was trying to sell Obama's Senate seat. A city, and this isn't my quote, this is a quote that was recently in the Sun-Times here by a Sun-Times sports writer, Rip Tellender. Um, he said, a city led by Mayor Daly and a vast and tumorous army of aldermen and bagmen and yesmen and opportunists and spineless political machine halfwits with forms never seen outside the only cesspool of government slop through greed. Uh, yeah, it made me feel good too. Um, <laughs> So he, he was writing this in response to the Chicago Olympic bid. Um, he's, he's so out, outraged with the corruption that's happened in this city, the cost to run overruns, the budget problems. Um, the, and, and it was a great piece, and it was really great to see a sports writer in Chicago coming out uh, against the Olympics. But he ends saying, having, had the city having proven itself unworthy of something, as potentially delicious and fulfilling as the 2016 Olympic Games. Um, now, as Dave mentioned, the reality of the Olympics isn't delicious and, and fulfilling. The Olympics define themselves with gentrification, destruction of public housing, and police misconduct. And the city of Chicago defines itself with gentrification, destruction of public housing, and police misconduct. Um, so the two of these together uh, will, will be a, a, a a disaster. Now, Chicago is not going to see the de the destruction of housing like you saw in Beijing, where it was um, over a million people displaced, or in in Seoul, Korea, where, where it was seven hundred fifty thousand people displaced. And that's not because the mayor is a good guy or the city's cautious around housing displacement, but it's actually because they've already knocked down those public housing units. Um, the the site where the Olympic Village is is set to be. Um, is really near uh, what was formerly the Robert Taylor Homes, which was at one point in time in this country the largest stretch of public housing units in the country, and it had 4,300 units. As of now, they don't exist. And it wasn't just Robert Taylor. There were a whole bunch of other different public housing uh, developments that really made up a stretch along the south side of Chicago um, that, that the city has cleared out. Um, and, and this has happened under something called the Plan for Transformation, um, which the Plan for Transformation is a central plan to knock down public housing in Chicago, offload it, and take that land and put it into, into the private market. And this is a plan they've been working on for over 10 years. Um, the reorganization, I don't know, the MacArthur Foundation, which is, which is big in Chicago, quoted, it's probably the biggest project since the, the Chicago fire. So you sort of get the immensity of what knocking down these, uh, this housing means. Um, 
And essentially what they're doing is handing over this land to private developers in the city. So this is public land that we choose for the public good uh, just being handed over. Uh, a reporter, uh, Ben Jurafsky from the Chicago Reader here, who's uh, really big in Chicago and, and talks about gentrification a lot, he said the city's end goal for public housing redevelopment was about middle class development, not improving housing for the city's poor, which is what they sold it as. And, and what, it, what it did is essentially open up the south and west side uh, for gentrification and development. Uh, that's the plan at the end of the day. Now, five minutes passed. I thought I had five minutes left. Okay, so the, 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 mayor, the mayor doesn't come out and say this, you know, that the intentions were to, to, to get rid of the poor, but at the end of the day, that's what, that's what you're seeing. Many residents have been given housing choice vouchers to find housing on the private market. However, the CHA doesn't track the whereabouts of these residents, so activists can only judge where people are going from, from anecdotal stories. Um, through the new criteria under the city's plan, the city is in effect dumping two-thirds of its public housing stock. It has also put further constraints on residents moving back into their previous neighborhoods once they're redeveloped, effectively instituting a, a vetting process for residents who are now required to work 30 hours a week or attend school to be placed in housing. Um, I, you know, it, it's hard for most people to work 30 hours a week right now or attend school given the economy. So, you know, like if you're in public housing, it's just at the end of the day, they're running people out. Um, uh, there's a study done that basically says at the end of the day, maybe 12 to 15 percent of residents who were originally in public housing would still be on the public housing rolls. Now, over the last 10 years in this, this city in Chicago, it has increasingly become a city orientated on the needs in the middle and upper classes. Um, the combination of poor housing stock, uh, skyrocketing prices, predatory lending, and the dismantling of public housing has de uh, delivered a severe blow to many Chicagoans. Those who can no longer afford to live in the city have been forced to move to the suburbs where a base of base, uh, lack of basic services uh, exist um, and, and really put a strain on people's lives. Uh, it, so at the end of the day, the, the plan for transformation that's being put forward is really should be called the plan for gentrification. And the city's bid for the 2016 Olympic Games is really the catalyst to make this happen um, and, and to further, further this trend. If the city gets the Olympic Games, essentially what it's going to do is it's going to blaze an Olympic torch of gentrification through the south and west sides of Chicago. Um, so this handing over of uh, public sec public lands to to the private sector, which you know, which you could refer to as neoliberalism, right? This is essentially what it is at the end of the day. It's really the main development plan for the city of Chicago right now. Um, Daly actually came back a couple months ago from a conference and he gave Obama some economic advice, right, about how, do you, how cities can survive economically. Uh, his basic policy, and this is his quote, if they start leasing public assets, every city, every country, every state, and the federal government would not have to raise any taxes whatsoever. You would, you would have more infrastructure money that way than any way in the nation. Um, so he says this while the government's like buying up banks, right, buying up GM, and this is Daly's uh, plan that, that he, he's put on forward for the city. And this has very much been the way they acted. They've been acting. There, there's the, the plan for transformation, which I mentioned, but the privatization of the city has been completely insane. We sold the bridge 
then there might not be that bridge in uh, Brooklyn Abide, but we sold a bridge here in Chicago. Uh, parking garages, parking meters, which is now uh, the mayor is caught up in this. They can't even sell parking meters correctly. Um, the, the, the mayor is totally caught up in that scandal. Basically, the city is looking at losing a billion dollars over the sale of the parking meters. It's trying to you know sell off the airport here. Um, public schools, uh, charter schools, and basically the, the selling off of, of schools here. And, and while Obama might not be taking uh, Daly's full direction on the privatization of everything, he is taking uh, the city of Chicago's direction around the, the plan for privatization of schools and charter schools. If you know in the, the last uh, uh, school spending bill that was put forward, part of it was that if cities wanted to get this money, they had to start to institute charter schools. And that was put forward by Arnie Duncan, who comes right out of Chicago and is in with the Obama team. Yeah, his is all around. The Obama team and Daly. So now, if the Olympics are awarded to Chicago, what we're going to see is the mother of all privatization deals in this city, essentially handing over the city's most valuable land. And that's not me saying that. That's the Chicago 2016 bid book that they had to present to the International Olympic Committee. Um, and, and what I mean by that, they're, they're handing over the public parks in Chicago to the IOC, the lakefront. There are two schools that are going to be destroyed so they can build uh, Olympic sites. Um, a, a site that was a former hospital um, that was having, uh, you know, monetary uh, uh, budget issues, but it was also the only hospital in this city with, uh, okay, with, with a functioning AIDS clinic on the south side. Um, and, and that's going to be the site of the Olympic Village. These are the priorities of the city, right? Is it hospitals or is it an Olympic Village? And the mayor and people downtown um, chose the hospital. The decision making around the bid process here hasn't even been privatized. It's a 501c3. So if you want information on the bid, if you want to do a Freedom of Information Act, you can't. It's not run through the city. There's really no decisions made in the city. All this is made in private. Um, and the players behind this, I'm going to get just go through this quickly because I think it matters. It's a downtown business district who has a real uh, interest in, in pushing the, the gentrification and the privatization of the city. The University of Chicago, um, it, which should be no surprise at all, um, and, and some of the largest developers in the city, and the Pritzker family, who is one of the main money families behind uh, Obama's campaign. Um, so the plan that they're putting forward, uh, like I said, the Olympic Village will be at the site of the former hospital. They're looking at privatizing a beach in the city, and, and, and in Chicago, the, the land on the lakefront is really sacred. It's supposed to be for the public, um, and, and they're going to privatize the beach there. They're ripping up two parks. They're going to put uh, 80,000 seat Olympic Stadium in a park, and a velodrome, and another one on the west side. And the last thing uh, people need, I think, on the west side of Chicago, given the conditions, is a velodrome. Um, trains, clinics, and stuff like that, I think we'd be much better off with. Um, they're estimating about spending about $5 billion, but if you look at London and Vancouver, it could well, well be $20 billion. Uh, London's spending $3 billion on security alone. Um, and so I want to talk about security right now, because Dave talked about the Olympics 
and repression and the Chicago Police Department and repression also go hand in hand actually and they're unapologetic uh, this week they announced that they were going to have a reunion of the the, the cops in the 68 Democratic uh, National Convention and the cops that uh, patrol the streets on the west side after King died and there were the riots there they're going to get together and have a reunion that's how unapologetic the CPD actually is right um, notorious for human rights violations to this day the city has never come out and actually talked about or taken full responsibility for John Burge who tortured uh, yeah, black men on the, on the south side of Chicago. Many of them ended up on death row. Uh, and police misconduct in Chicago is hardly limited to Burge. Um, in 2007, the CPD documented 32 police-involved shootings. 29 of them were failed. Uh, the Chicago Tribune did a, a, a large um, study about a year ago, and they said, Chicago police shoot a civilian on, every, on average once every 10 days. Um, so, so that's the CPD, and I, I want to talk about London real quick because you can get a sense of sort of what the, the security looks like when the Olympics come, and I think Chris is going to talk about this too. Um, uh, London for the 2012, 2012 uh, Summer Olympics, they have an Olympic Park, and around the Olympic Park, to give you a sense of what a security zone this is, they're working on installing a 5,000 volt electronic security fence that will be accompanied by guards with attack dogs, facial recognition and face print technology, computerized monitoring system that's going to hook up into London CCTV cameras, and they're also going to be flying planes over the city with bombs attached to them. I mean, this is sort of the insanity of, of, of uh, uh, the Olympic security crackdown. Um, and Chicago is going to be following this example. So in China this, this past summer, while everybody was freaking out about the human rights violations there, the Chicago BID team actually went to China and they were boasting to the IOC how we had the same uh, um, CCTV technology to keep an eye on everybody as the Chinese government had. This is what they were doing when they, when they went to to, to Beijing, not you know, not look how beautiful our city is, but look at how well we can actually patrol our citizens. Um, so I mean, they're begin to wrap up. Shoot, um, they're looking at seven thousand strong uh, private police force on the streets here in Chicago, alongside uh, the CPD, alongside uh, the military. Um, so, okay, so I gotta wrap up. Um, so this all sounds, this sounds dire, right? I mean, it sounds like this is gonna be awful, um, which if it comes, it will be. But in the last few months, things in Chicago, I think, have started to change, and the wheels have started to fall off. Chicago's Olympic bid. Now, the mayor has said time and time again that this isn't gonna cost the people of Chicago a dime. Now, he went this week to Switzerland to present the Olympic bid to the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and he told them that any cost of runs that it will occur, we're gonna pay for it. We'll pick up the tab. Um, after, after telling everybody in the city for almost two years that this wasn't gonna happen. Um, and there's been a, been a really big break in the debate in this around Chicago, not, not amongst people, because I think there's a lot of people in Chicago that, that get it, but actually among the mainstream press, that sometimes there's two newspapers left in Chicago, ran a headline that looked like Socialist Worker the other day, it said, you'll pay really big on the front page for their Olympic Games. Um, and editorial is actually coming out about the corruption in the city and et cetera. Um, 
And, and this is how he goes and he does this, right, while, while he is just axing jobs in the city left and right. Uh, the week before he left, there were a thousand employees uh, in the CPS headquarters, the Chicago Public Schools headquarters that were laid off. A thousand non-union uh, city workers just took job cuts. He's looking at laying off uh, 1,600 unionized workers. There's actually a battle going on um, with that, if that'll happen or not. This, this is happening while basic city services are being slashed, and the state is looking at 50% uh, budget cuts uh, for social services. They actually drew 5,000 people downtown this week to protest, many of them holding signs saying, no Olympics, we want um, actual uh, services and jobs. Um, to, to talk about just an example of how bad this is going to look, I mean, the priorities of the city, where they're finding all this money for the Olympics. Um, I know somebody that just suffered from, from these budget cuts, and it was a woman that worked at uh, Rape Victim Advocates. And, and there, you know, what, what her role essentially was, was a person, if, if there was rape victim, to go between and between the police, to keep the police in line, and, 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 the, and the victim, I have to wrap up. Um, their, their staff is essentially non-existent now because of these budget cuts. So, so that layer in between you know, the, the cops and, and the rape victim is now gone because of these cuts. And that's just one story of one section of, of you know, public services that's being cut. This is the way it's looking uh, across the board in the city. Um, and all this is happening too with Blagojevich in the background and all this corruption. Um, so you get a sense that there's a possibility in the city for people to be completely outraged and start to actually get to the streets and fight this and fight back. Because this is the city of the daily machine, but it's also the city of the eight hour day, right? The, the largest media marches in the history of this country and the Republican knows the doors workers, right? So you have those two things happening side by side here, and I think the potential for fight back in the city for actual change to demand um, what what we want this city to look like is there. Um, no Game Chicago got, I'm gonna wrap up on this because Dave told me if I didn't, he'd punch me. Um, no Game Chicago, um, we met with the IOC when they came to town. Um, we had a fight to, to make it happen, but we met with the IOC, it was creepy, but we got to tell them, um, that our city's broke, it's corrupt, um, we can't build anything on time or, or on budget, but most of all, if you bring these games to Chicago, we're going to go from protesting Chicago 2016 to protesting you and make your life hell for the next seven years. So don't even think about it. And I think that's that's the, the atmosphere here. Now, uh, I was going to wrap up on that, but Daly, I want to add this. Daly pledged all this money in Switzerland, right? Um, he was supposed to come back on a plane yesterday with the Chicago 2016 bid team, but the situation here in the city is so bad for him to come back that he actually had to take two weeks and go to Jordan before he comes back to the city because that's how hot uh, the situation is. But that's also how it works. When things get hot in the city, he goes on vacation. Um, so that's that. Uh, I, I got to end on that, obviously. But I think in the city of Chicago, we have a fight. It's a fight for better hospitals, better housing, better schools, better trains, and Olympic Games. hard to follow uh, Dave and Bob. I know the first time I was on uh, Dave's show, he had me laughing so hard that I couldn't even answer the question, so half an hour went by and I just I don't remember anything of the show besides giggling for half an hour. <laughs>
So I, it was. It was. It was yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad Dave reminded me about that that slogan you have here in Chicago. Let friendship shine, because Vancouver's slogan was "It's our time to shine." So they obviously had the same ad agency. The bastards here couldn't even couldn't even come up with the original slogan. It was just kind of, kind of remarkable. And, and what that really shows is that there's a template working here. Vancouver's template is the same as Chicago's template. Is the same as. And if Timbuktu ever bids on the games, you can bet that Timbuktu will have built something. Something will be shining there. There. There as well. So the way the Olympics presents itself and, and the way the, the bid organizers in any city present themselves, it's it's elite sports for human 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 betterment and, and peace of mankind. Um, and it was funny because I was just at a, at a conference in London. Dick, Dick Pound, uh, Dave's friend, was was there uh, with the unfortunate name. And, and some reporter took him aside and he was asking about the so-called Olympic truce. The Olympic truce is, is that during the games, wars stop. Wow. And the reporter said, well, what do you think about the Olympic truce? And Dick Pound said, so, yeah, so that's what you think the IOC really believes about the Olympic truce, that rude gesture. So from, from, the, from, from the Mr. Pound himself, uh, the, 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 the mighty Dick, um, the, the games are presented in this way as that they're going to enforce all these good things. And not only that, your city's going to get rich and, and everyone's going to be prosperous. It's kittens and rainbows and everything. And the way they present it to you, how would you, why would you not want kittens and rainbows? Why wouldn't you not want peace amongst, amongst the populations of the world? And if sports can deliver that, and if you're going to get rich too, wow, that's great. What could be wrong with that? And I, I will summarize it in a few words that I will then talk about Vancouver's experience. It can be summarized in the words that this is a perfect example of privatized profit and socialized debt. That's exactly what they're doing. Imagine, imagine how many are you from Chicago? A lot of Chicago? Okay. So, so uh, Bob told us about the Pritzker family, but those of you from somewhere else, imagine the richest family in your town, and they kind of they knock on your door, and all of a sudden you're, you're there you know, reading the IS Review, or Dave's book, or my book, and, and uh, mind your own business, and they say, hey, we want to have a party, and we want to invite you. Cool. I get to go to a Pritzker party. That's cool. But yeah, it's going to be great, and you're going to have so much fun. You can meet all these celebrities, and royalty, and the president will be there, and it's just, it's going to be one It'll be the best party that you've ever been to. And people have talked about this for decades. Oh, uh, we want to have it at your house. Okay, cool. Uh, but uh, there's a caveat. We, we, you got to change the furniture because it really doesn't work with a ski. Okay. Oh, and, and, and by the way, we're going to have to tear up your backyard because we need to do some stuff in the backyard. Okay. And oh, by the way, uh, we need to bring our private security in because we don't want, you know, the riffraff getting in. Okay. And oh, oh, by the way, you have to pay for it. Oh. Okay, and that, that's the point when kind of the, 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 mo the moment that, that has happened in Chicago when that it won't cost us one dime kind of kind of clicks in and you realize hmm this could cost more than a few dimes because we had a mayor back in Vancouver back in 2002 when Vancouver was bidding on the games and he said it will not cost Vancouverites one penny. So technically, he of course was right, as you'll see in a, in a few moments, uh, but it wasn't quite the way most Vancouverites wanted to believe it. So when Vancouver first was bidding on the games, they, the bid organizers, and every city has this bid core, where, and so for example, Vancouver had, it had called bid core, what do they call it here? Uh, Chicago 2016, Kittens and Rainbows, yeah, whatever, whatever it is. And, and so they, they, they basically they, they put out this bid book and it lists the numbers that, that they're supposedly they're gonna follow to. So Vancouver's bid book said it was only gonna cost us $660 million, and that's everything. 
That's everything. All the all costs and the the, oper the operating period of the games is completely paid by the private sector. So again, really no, not not a penny. And just those extra little things that you got to kick in for it's really not a lot of money because the economy is going to be so stimulated and money is just going it's going to fall from the heaven. It's going it's going to fill up your treasury. It's going to slop over and it's going to go in, you know and into everything you want and you'll get the hospitals you want. And so the the games are this massive opportunity to leverage stuff. So in January this year, uh, the number turned out instead of to be six hundred and sixty million dollars, it was well over six billion dollars, and that was probably an underestimate, a vast underestimate. And, and when you compare that to something like London, London's official bid was two point four billion sterling. That then went as of last month to actually a little before last month in January, it had gone to over nine billion sterling and translated into American. That's fifteen billion dollars already. And they're three years ahead of the games. So these cost escalations happen each and every time. They are, they are, they are part and parcel of everything. The bid organizers and the governments are complicit in this. The bid organizers lowball the numbers because they want people to get on board with the kittens and rainbows idea and that it's all free and that you're going to get a lot of goodies back and they don't want you to know the true numbers. So the the the, the, real, the reality cost for Vancouver was six uh, six over six billion dollars, and again that's an underestimate because what they also do is they also restrict your access to information, so they don't actually let you find out how much it's actually going to cost. So. The six billion dollars did not count the full security costs that were originally lowballed at 175 million. When they haven't had 175 million dollars security costs going back 30 years, they came up with that number. It's now over a billion that they've admitted. Um, the the uh, the impacts go far beyond financial stuff, though. I should I should mention by the way, and, and we keep seeing headlines like this. This is what's in your future in Chicago if you do this. You see headlines like this. It would be hard for some of you in the back to see it. Olympic Village needs more dough. Well, the Olympic Village was supposed to be a completely private project that wasn't going to involve the city of Vancouver at all. It was going to be built by these developers that the city had chosen, but it turned out that the developers were bankrupt. So the city actually had to step in and assume the complete financing for this project. So what was supposed to be essentially free, the city of Vancouver is now holding a billion dollar mortgage on in, a, in the middle of a recession where they can't sell the, sell the units at, at any kind of profit. The city's also gone so far into debt, they put $300 million into a new subway line that was not needed. They put unknown amounts of money into security, and we still don't know how much that's going to be. And they, every time city council meets, they vote another half million dollars, another $20 million, another... And, and it's, it's the bill that finally comes out for the city of Vancouver could be over a billion and a half dollars, just for Vancouver. And when you consider that Vancouver's entire assets in something called the Property Endowment Fund are just slightly over that, the city is skating right on the, on the brink of an insolvency. So Montreal's case that Dave mentioned, as bad as it was, they didn't bankrupt the city, whereas actually Vancouver could do that. And Chicago has an awesome opportunity to do exactly the same thing. So the idea that these games are economic panaceas in times of economic hardship is complete crap. They are the biggest train wreck you could possibly imagine. Beyond the fiscal costs, and the fiscal costs are only one aspect of the social dimension of this. We had, when the games were awarded to Vancouver, 600 homeless people living on our streets. Already a scandal. We now have 3,000 homeless people. And talking about priorities, 3,000 homeless people. Uh, a, a, a legal advocate for the homeless people got up in front of Vancouver City Council in 2007, and he said, if you start building the homeless uh, rooms now and the hotels you promised now, if you start doing it now, you can actually build them for the people coming in, in, in 2010. You don't want to show the world 3,000 people living in the rain on, their, on the streets of Vancouver. And city council, and he had actually he'd worked it out. He actually came up with a number. He said it'll cost roughly $300 million. 
And city council members kind of looked at their shoes and they kind of looked around the room and they pointed, it's the provincial government's fault, it's the federal government's fault. And said, we just can't do it. We'd love to, we'd really love to, but we can't do it. The minute the athlete's village got into trouble, the minute they got into trouble, they were pouring money from that same property endowment fund into the athlete's village. First they came up with $30 million, and they came up with $100 million, and they came up with $190 million loan guarantee, $20 million more, etc. So it wasn't, it was never a question that the money was there. It was purely a question of where their priorities were. And their priorities were not for getting people off the streets and into shelter. Their priorities were Locking up their, their buddies who were building the Athletes' Village. I should mention again, the, the, the company that actually got the bid to build the Athletes' Village actually had ties into City Hall through, through a shell company that they actually operated. So you've got the impacts on the poor and the homeless. They've closed hotels. They've put more people on the streets. There's a massive gentrification going on in the part of town that they've always wanted. And it, it fits in exactly with what's happening in London. It fits in with what's happening in Chicago. These are massive gentrification efforts. And they have enormous impacts on civil liberties. Actually, I'll, before I get to civil liberties, let's just mention environment. These were built, in every game is now, the third pillar of Olympism is supposed to be environmental conservation. And that goes with sports and, and, and arts. Environmental conservation is supposed to be important. So every bid is supposed to be the greenest ever. So how green were Vancouver's games? Well, let's see. They cut down about 100,000 trees for the venues. They put out more carbon dioxide than 77 countries on the planet. Okay. They, and, and they have destroyed wildlife habitat up and down what's called the Sea to Sky Corridor. That's how green they were. What are, what are the impact on civil liberties? So other than the fact that the, the original security cost was low-balled deliberately, from 175 million and now well over a billion. What we now know in Vancouver and in London, and you're gonna get it in Chicago too, is you'll have CCTV cameras on every corner. They first promised us they would, be, they, they would be transitory, the CCTV cameras would not stick around. Guess what, it turns out Vancouver actually bought them, didn't rent them, and they're gonna keep them, and they're gonna be actually mobile so they can move them all around the city for anything they want. Um, they're, they're worried about something called ambush marketing. Ambush marketing, the city passed a bylaw, and the bylaw said, uh, I'm getting high science here, so I will go fast. The uh, city passed a bylaw that said, um, ambush marketing is really something we're concerned about. So if, you're, if you put a sign in your window and you're trying to sell hamburgers with the Olympic rings, you just can't do that. Oh, okay, fine, fair enough. And then they said, oh, by the way, any, any sign that goes in the window that might be considered ambush marketing has to come down. So I said, well, I got this up in front of the city council. If I put that book in my window, my book, and it says clearly things are against the, the games, and it's in my private property, what happens? And the bylaw allows them actually to come to my private property and take it down and find me $10,000. And do that every day, every day that I, that, that I do that. Okay? And we said, well, listen, if it's only about ambush marketing, just put a clause saying it's not about civil liberties. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. Nor would they put, would they put any kind of uh, um, final closure on it. Uh, or a sunset clause on it. We know we're going to get something like 15,000 police and soldiers in our city. We know the city is going to be massively locked down for the games. It's going to be very difficult for ordinary people who do not want to go celebrate the games or can't afford the hockey tickets or whatever tickets to actually get about their business, to go to their jobs. I, I, I live about half an hour away from where I actually work. I have to cross three bridges to do it. Those bridges are all going to be Olympic-only security lanes. So I don't even know how I'm going to get to work in 2010. If you have to get your kid to a doctor, if you have to take your kid to school, if you have to go about just about your normal business and you're just a normal person who doesn't want to go out and celebrate the games, you're screwed. And that's the end of it. And, and what our organizing committee chairman said, he said, well, take vacation. <laughs> Work from home. Yeah, that's, that's how much they care about us. Activists are already being harassed. I was walking down the street two weeks ago. Two police officers in plain clothes came up to me. One of them had my book. And one of them said to me, Dr. Shaw, I need to talk to you about some of the things you've written in your book. So those are the things that are happening. The harassment of activists, 
Uh, one of one of my colleagues calls it, we have now, with all the costs associated with the games, with the things that are happening, with the cameras, the police, the lockdowns, the harassment of activists, he calls it user pay police state, and I think that's what we're, we're heading for. So the question is really, how did it go so wrong? And the answer is, it didn't go wrong from their perspective, because it's not about kittens and rainbows. It's not about the things they told us it was about. It was about something very different. It was about profit for an, a select group of people. The IOC makes roughly $2 billion in tax-free profit everywhere. They pay no taxes on this planet. $2 billion, and that's what they walk away with. And every city and every country signs the host city agreement that, that in, passes enabling legislation that makes them tax-free. They don't even pay, pay taxes in Switzerland because they're considered a non-profit entity. Yeah. And at the local level, what's it all about? It's about real estate. It's about the real estate Bob talked about. In London, it's about real estate. They're developing a, a huge development going into the area called East Stratford and Hackney that are, that are going to be gentrified because that's the goal of it. In Vancouver, it's the development of what's called the downtown east side, the whole corridor from Vancouver all the way to Whistler. Um, all of these things are really what drives the bid. We know this in Vancouver's case because the head of the bid organization, a fellow named Jack Poole, actually was candid enough to say so in an unguarded moment. He said, if the games weren't coming, and he was speaking to a bunch of developers, if the games weren't coming, we'd have to invent something. And he did. He, he drove the bid. So really what we're looking at is, again, it comes back to that whole notion. This is privatized profits, socialized debt. They're getting their special projects. These are projects that have come up before. The public thought they were too stupid or too expensive. And what they've done under the, under the rubric of the Olympics, they've simply passed the, the cost to us. We are paying for them to develop their private projects that they will now sell off into the market after the games. And that's exactly what it's all about. And I'm definitely getting the high sign here. Um, so what do we do? What can we do about it? What you see here in Chicago, there's a resistance happening here, and there's a resi resistance happening in Vancouver. There's an or organization called the Olympic Resistance Network. I'm wearing one of their t-shirts, organized around the slogan of no games on stolen native land, because that turns out all of British Columbia is stolen native land. And they're having games. And we are going to meet the IOC in the streets, and we're going to show them that we do not accept they're coming into our town and privatizing our town on stolen native land, marginalizing our poor, destroying our environment, and it's not acceptable. And we will fight it every step of the way, and we are going to be there to show to not only to the IOC, but to the rest of the world. If other cities want to bid on this, this is what you're, this is what's in your future. This is almost like a paying it forward sort of, sort of goal. We are trying to teach other cities, and, and including Chicago, that the, that the games will bring massive economic destruction, eco uh, environmental destruction, marginalization of the poor, and poverty for your society if you actually bring the games. And you have to actually oppose them. We're looking at legal actions to actually make the people who promised certain things and lied, and we can prove they lied, making, making, making them accountable. And I just want to quote with I close with a quote from Thomas Paine. I heard a, a really good talk by, by Thomas Paine earlier today. Uh, and, and Thomas Paine, in his, his seminal, seminal essay called Common Sense, wrote, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And I think as we leave this conference, uh, Amy Gooden talked yesterday about how this is sort of a magic moment for, for radicalism and, and how we can change society. And I think we have to think about this magic moment and think how we can begin the world over again. Thank you very much. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. 
We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Thank you.